Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 19. You have a review that uh, you've been most likely handed on your way in that has the outline of today's sermon and new versions available for you. And if you so choose, we'd love it when you check into Facebook because it lets people know that the church at Indian Lake is alive and ready to share this very important message of Jesus Christ with our community. I worked for a guy named John McKenzie for nine years. He was a high school pastor. I was a junior high pastor. We had a great working relationship. I was thinking about something that happened to us one time. We had brought in a nationally known speaker to speak to our youth at youth camp. Typically, we would have just a friend come in, uh, someone who was an effective minister, but we decided to get kind of this uh, nationally known uh, youth evangelist, and he came in, and he did a nice job, did a great job, and we took good care of him. We paid him well. We put him in really nice accommodations. We laughed a lot with this guy. It was my job that week to take him out to dinner every night. So I took him out to dinner every night and had like five meals with this guy. And so we just seemed to have a nice rapport. The kids enjoyed uh, hearing from him. And so it was quite possible that he would become a regular speaker to the group that we led. A few months later, we're at a convention for the tribe that we were part of in those days. And we were at this convention. And now you wouldn't know who this guy was if I told you, but in that era, in that tribe, he was known, and he was, you know, almost famous, so to speak. He kind of had some notoriety among us. In this huge convention hall, I see that he's like walking towards us. And so after all this rapport we thought we had with him, we thought, well, great, we're going to get to say hello to, we'll call this guy Billy. We'll get to say hello to Billy. So Billy's walking towards us. And I told you he was almost famous, you know. He, he was feeling the fame of this tribe. I mean, he was just strutting along, kind of like, I'm known in this place. And, and he, he's approaching us, and he's coming towards us. So as he's walking towards us, we said something to the effect of, Hey, Billy, what's up, Billy? Old pal, the guy that three months ago I had like five meals with in one week. I haven't had five meals with my wife in years. Uh, hey, what's up, man? And... Billy, walking with fame, strutted along, didn't even turn his head and said, what's up, fellas? And just kept walking. Didn't even have the courtesy to turn his head to the left. Didn't even have the respect to look our way. Didn't even ever get booked again to speak to our kids because of that. You know, the look is important. Communication is incomplete without the look. I remember when I was a, a kid, one of my, my, my friend's dads wore those really, really dark sunglasses all the time. Now, there, there's obviously medical reasons why that needs to happen. And, and my eyes are sensitive, and so sometimes I've had to do that myself. But I don't think he did it. At least it would ruin the story if he did. So um, I'm going to assume that he didn't do it for medical reasons. And I just remember that, like on the playground, like he'd come in just dark eyes, you know, just blacked out. And, and there was just something unsettling about that, something scary. I didn't know where this guy was looking, didn't know what was going on. I, I, I want to look him in the eye. Remember when your dad taught you how to shake a hand? He said, shake a hand and look the person in the eye. There's a connection that happens when we look at one another. There's an emotional connection when we look at each other 
in the eye. And when we don't, it's unsettling. If possible, if medically possible, I want to see your eyes when we talk. I want to see where you're looking. There is a look from the Lord we're going to discover today. A look from the Lord that changes everything. We're going to look at four different looks, not to overuse that word, examine four different looks in the story of Zacchaeus. Maybe it's been a while since you've read this story, but from this story we're going to see four different looks. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 1, says it this way. He, and this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacharias who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd. He was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he, being Jesus, was about to pass that way. Here's the first look that I want us to consider this morning. The curious look. The curious look. It doesn't take, you don't have to go very far in a conversation with anyone over the age of 30 these days to feel the concern in our voices and in what we see. Some things are happening in society that seem negative, that seem like bad changes. And because of that, I like to also think about the good that has come from living in 2016. Because there's many, many things that have improved in 2016. There's many advantages for, for being alive in 2016. Now, one of the negative things that have occurred, and this is a statistical fact, I tell you this a lot, but you need to hear it a lot, that far less people are going to church today in America than there were in 1990. About 1990, church participation fell drastically. From 1950 to 1990, it was stable. And since 1990, it's fallen off drastically. And to be, if you really look at statistics, if it was not for the immigrant churches, then the American church would have dismal church participation. That is a negative. Here's a positive, though. People are more curious about Jesus than they've ever been before. It used to be that we lived in a culture that in order to sell insurance, and in order to get patients, and in order to get on the school board, you had to be a member of a church. Now, truthfully, here in Sumner County, there's still a little bit of that left. I think we're one of the last communities in all of America where that's like. So I think that we're a little deceived about the condition of our country uh, because of this kind of uh, tone that, that's, that's still here. But there is a religious tone to that. There's this idea that the gospel gives me a social advantage. I'm going to send out my postcard of me running for political office to tell you what church I'm a part of because that's going to help me get more votes. I'm going to hang out in the lobby and make connections so I can get more patients or get more sales or have more people to distribute my business cards to. So that doesn't 
really sound like the message of follow me and you're going to die that Jesus gave. So when we begin to, as a wider country, begin to see that there is this deconstruction of this religious attitude and this religious mindset, what are we left with? We're left with authentic Christianity. And, and, we're, and I believe we'll see that rapidly here in our community in the next few years, is that people are going to come to church because of Jesus. They're going to come to church because of Christian community. They're going to come to church because there's actually been a conversion in their hearts. One of the things that I'm praying for you, and I'm not the judge of who's saved and who's not saved. You know me, when I preach, I think you've heard me preach long enough to know that I'm trying to convince people they're saved, not convince people that they're unsaved. I believe that there's a great security of believers here. Uh, great security in the work of Jesus Christ. But I also think some of you aren't saved. I really do. I think, I think, you, think, think you're deceived. When revival comes to the church, it's when Christians start getting saved and quit having a casual cultural Christianity that brings you social benefit. It means that Jesus is the one that you've died to everything for. Nothing's more important to Jesus. Nothing's more important to him. This type of Jesus people are curious about. People are curious about a Jesus who actually changes lives. People are, are, are curious about a Jesus who actually makes marriage stronger, stronger. People are curious about a Jesus who actually makes a difference in parenting. People are different about, about a Jesus who has a different pace of life than this maddening lifestyle that we're living in that's self-destructive. We're self-destructing because of busyness. We're self-destructing because of this pace that we have created in our life that gives no room for a relationship with God. And so it is that people around you are more curious about Jesus than you realize. And what they're doing, if we pause to look up or look around, they're climbing the sycamore trees and they're positioning themselves to see the real Jesus. If you want to take the metaphor a bit further, I believe sometimes the crowd of Christianity keeps people from really seeing the real Jesus. The crowd of Christianity keeps people from seeing the real him. But people around you are climbing up the sycamore tree to see Jesus. Research has demonstrated that in most societies, there's always a group of people who are on the verge of converting to Christianity. I want you to think about this a second. Research has shown missiologists who study the spread of religion, the spread of Christianity specifically, that in every community, meaning at Station Camp High School and in the police department here and in Westmoreland, and in the projects in Gallatin, there's always a group of people who are ready to accept the gospel. Timing is everything. There's a curiosity today. There's a curiosity while we are preoccupied. We are preoccupied with uh, larger social issues that, yes, while they may affect our lives, sometimes it's just white noise that just distracts us from what's happening in our daily life. We're so preoccupied 
flip this sort of kind of macro social development that we don't see people that are in the tree right in our pathway. And I'm here to encourage you today that there are people in your lives that are closer to Jesus than you realize, and they may not be the people you would expect. You can't see it with natural eyes, but you can see it with spiritual eyes. In 2016, as we move into 2017, I believe that we're on the verge of the greatest harvest that there's ever been, when people are desperate for Jesus, people are desperate for God, that when God's people repent of their sins, when God's people begin to care more about prayer than entertainment, when God's people begin to humble themselves before God, and instead of trying to be right, we try to be holy. If we begin to do the things that God's called us to do, we can see the greatest spiritual fruit that has ever existed in our nation. It is before us. Our best days are ahead of us. We have uh, more resources and abilities and understanding than ever before. And so it is. The Lord is desiring to touch many, many people. And it is not your responsibility to judge the world. That's God's responsibility. It's your responsibility to love the world and to know his love and to share his love. So it is that all around us, great opportunity has come. Now, none of that was in my notes, and I have a lot I want to say today, so I've got to reorganize here. Let's go to verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today I must stay at your house So he, being Zacchaeus, quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Here's the second look. Now Zacchaeus climbed the tree and he had a curious look. Now Jesus looked up and saw Zacchaeus and he had an inclusive look. An inclusive look. Zacchaeus was hated. He was really rich because he cheated people. He was a tax collector and in many ways, he was a traitor to the pure Jewish nationality and faith. As a Jew himself, Zacchaeus was working for the enemy. As a Jew himself, Zacchaeus was using injustice to oppress an oppressed people. He was a tool. He was an instrument. No doubt that Zacchaeus didn't have many friends. It's very logical to conclude Zacchaeus was lonely. He had social needs himself. He probably didn't have a lot of friends himself. So what did Jesus do? Jesus looked at him. And then, you'll see it there in your text, Jesus called him by his name. Zacchaeus, come down. How did Jesus know his name? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But I think that being God himself, it was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's gift in his life. Maybe we could call it today. We don't know this for sure. Maybe we could call it a word of knowledge. as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 refers to. Saying, I don't really know this guy's name, but maybe the Lord said, Zacchaeus, you come down. No matter how he knew the name, here was the important part that he called him by name. He looked at him and he called him by name. We would be very much like Jesus if we began to learn the names of our enemies. 
Because when we learn people's names, we begin to learn their stories. And we might find out that they're not so much our enemies as they are uh, just really broken people like us. And whatever it is that our, quote, enemies are doing to irritate us and to stir us, um, maybe it is that there's a deep pain that they're responding to. Maybe it is that there's a deep need that they're responding to. And your friendship and your hospitality could change the world. Inviting someone to a meal. Students going and sitting sitting with someone at the cafeteria. Buying someone's coffee, and that's a fun, popular thing to do. Like, we buy the coffee and run away. But why don't you buy the coffee and engage in conversation? Well, we've got to have more margin in our life for that, don't we? Dude, we can't do the work of God with this incredibly busy pace. We've got to slow down things. It's friendship. It's knowing people. It's finding out what their names is and why they were named that and where they're from and who they are and saying, come on, come on, come be a part of this thing. Come, come be part of my tribe. Come be part of my church. Come be part of my people. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, it's a very helpful scripture to me. It says, to this end, we also pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. I love that phrase because that communicates that we don't become worthy and then get called. We get called and then God makes us worthy. I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many times that I've preached the word of God from this stage here under God's anointing with life change and I probably didn't have any business preaching that Sunday. But God had called me to preach. God made me worthy. That's called grace. And if we're really honest, guys, if we're really honest, I'm kind of speaking to Christians today. If we're really honest about our Christian faith is that, you know, we really don't have this stuff together either, do we? God uses us to serve. He uses us in in different ways. He puts us in leadership positions. We're we're involved in stuff and we get this kind of respectability. But the, the truth is we're not really worthy of that. But the one who called us makes us worthy. And when you have that attitude, then you, begin, you can begin to say to the Zacchaeuses in your life, those curious people who are up in the trees, they don't want to be part of the Christian crowd. They get up in the trees because they want to see the real Jesus pass by. And you can say, come on down. Let me call you by name. Let me show you hospitality because Zacchaeus, you're really no different than me. Zacchaeus, you may have tangibly cheated people with um, tax policy and tax collection, but I've cheated people in other ways too, and we both need this Jesus. And I'm going to call all of us, starting with me, to begin to look for people we can befriend and look for people that we can show hospitality to. And what would happen in the course of two years if we all begin to lovingly consider our neighbor and befriend those And not be so, like, preoccupied with Sunday morning attendance. No doubt, no one cares about Sunday morning attendance more than I do here, right? There's no doubt. There's no one in this room who cares more about it than I do. But if we begin to care more about 
the condition of people's souls. The, the attendants saying, well, well, we won't be able to hold, we won't be able to hold multiple services. That, that's, that's a byproduct of a right heart, of a heart that's searching out the things of the Lord. We're going to start something I've been working on this fall covertly. You've heard a little bit about it, something called Alpha. And Alpha won't be the answer for everyone. Not all of you will participate in it because it, it's just not possible for that to happen. But Alpha is a course that is designed for people who, who are investigating Christian, Christianity or, or who uh, may be atheists, may be agnostic. And it's a chance for us as a church to come together and to give a place for people to explore Christianity. And it gives you a tool to invite people. We are a welcoming church. You guys are friendly. You guys are really friendly. I know that because when I have you shake hands, I have to kind of shut down the friendliness. I love that. We're friendly people, but we don't, we're not inviting people. And the Lord's going to change that. He's going to help us change that. And there's no pressure in that, right? So I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about inviting. The Lord's going to help us see how we can invite, how we can help people. When you get about the Lord's work, not everyone likes it. Luke 19.7 says this, All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Isn't that interesting? The God of all creation came here as a man to show us the way, and he got criticized by the religious. Here's the third look, the critical look. The critical look. Jesus-style ministry isn't always socially acceptable. Jesus-style ministry isn't always socially acceptable. I've always been in socially acceptable churches. I've always lived in the suburbs, and that's what God's called me to do. Tough calling, right? But no, but the Lord's been very clear to me about that. He hasn't called me to go to the Muslim world. hasn't called me to go to the inner city. Uh, he's called me to, to you guys and to the people who are in your lives and to your friends and to my friends and my neighbors. And... If we move into this unknown place, which I know I'm talking in the theory today of Jesus-style ministry, it won't come without criticism. And some of you may even leave our church because of that. You might say, now what are you talking about? I don't really know yet. It sounds like great leadership, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't really know, but I know that I'm hungry to move beyond the status quo. And I'm hungry to reach people we haven't reached before. I know that um, we do live in a culture in shambles and it's manifesting in our education, it's manifesting in our politics, it's manifesting in our entertainment, but those aren't the causations, those are the results. The causations is uh, a lack of conversion, a lack of redemption, a lack of God changing our hearts from the inside out. And so it is that Criticism could happen. One thing is that I want to read something to you and and to read it, for you to understand what this is. It's a story, but but I have to give a little theology to it. You know, the Bible Bible says in one particular place to one particular church, 
uh, talks about women shouldn't speak in church. Obviously, uh, some churches hold that literally. We don't hold that literally, and there's, that's another sermon another day. Uh, as we understand biblical criticism and the whole scope of the Bible and the fact that Bible, the Bible uh, used women from the beginning to the end, way before women had rights, that's part of the reasoning and understanding. So with that in mind, I want to read to you a section of Eugene Peterson talking about his mom who was a preacher. This would have been probably in the 1940s or 50s. It comes from this excellent book called Pastor by Eugene Peterson. So I never read passages, and, and, and Beth says I'm a terrible reader. Uh, I actually thought about having you read this, but I've practiced a few times, so I think it's going to go well. And if it doesn't, I won't read this at the 1045 service. So here's Eugene Peterson's words. And, and this is under the point of the criticism. Jesus-style ministry is criticized. When I was three, maybe four years old, she began to take me with her on Sunday evenings to hold religious meetings in small, out-of-the-way settlements of miners and lumberjacks scattered around the valley in the northern Rocky Mountains. We met in one schoolroom, houses, Grange Halls. She accompanied herself with either a guitar or accordion. She led her rustic congregation in country gospel songs, such as Life is Like a Mountain Railroad, or Give Me That Old Time Religion, or When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. The lumberjacks and miners in their clomping Hobnail boots, bib overalls, and flannel shirts sang along. And they sang these sentimental old songs, and they wept. They took their red bandanas, wiped their tears without any embarrassment. Not the genteel congregations, these 25 or 30 men sitting on backless benches met those Sunday nights. Occasionally, one of them would spit tobacco juice out of an open window, and sometimes they would miss. This went on until I was six. It stopped because my mother gave birth to my sister, and there was now a baby to tend to. But when my sister was old enough to join us, it was not resumed. Later, when I was a teenager, I asked her why she never started up the Sunday night meetings again. And she told me that a man having learned of what she had been doing, confronted her after Sunday morning worship in our church with an open Bible and read to her this passage, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. So she kept silent. I will never know, nor did she then, what took place in the lives of those lumberjacks and miners because she was intimidated into silence. When we care more about religious traditions and people, it puts us in a dangerous place. That story made me so sad to think that this gal, decades ago now, who was preaching to people who wouldn't go to a church, was silenced by the church. And I say, Lord, help us to see. Help us to look past. Help us to see what you can do when our hearts are submitted to you. 
finishing the story, verse 8. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. If I've exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay you back four times as much. Here's that work-based salvation. But Jesus said, hey, today salvation has come to this house. He didn't say, hey, but I did. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, meaning it's not work-based salvation. It's, a, it's, it's salvation because I said so. Verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Here's the last look today. A changed look. A changed look. Zacchaeus looked to the Lord, and the Lord looked to him. And then there was a critical look that was ignored. And then what happened? When the look of the Lord came, it changed everything. It changed everything. One of my spiritual mentors, though he's been dead, uh, almost 20 years now. It's a guy named John Wimber. I don't know if we have this quote available, but I read, I read this yesterday and thought about this. It says, many times God works miracles in quite different ways from what we expect. Zacchaeus climbed the tree in order to see Christ more clearly, but in doing so was himself more clearly seen by God. Isn't that beautiful? In this regard, divine appointments have an air of serendipity about them. A surprising discovery of divine favor. This is the look of the Lord. When we begin to try to look for God, we find that he looks to us and everything changes. That's why Psalm 32 says this, blessed is the one whose transgressions, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's stand together. We're a blessed people today, are we not? We're a blessed people today. I know that at the beginning of my sermon, I was kind of pontificating. I was kind of just, just, just sharing some of the stuff that's going on inside of me. And I, and, and I didn't even plan to share many of those things today. Maybe it was because PJ was here and that stirred me up hearing her talk about Gallatin and what's going on there. Um, but um, our, our gracious Lord, our gracious Lord has looked upon us and we are blessed people. We're blessed people. We're not bound to sin. We're not bound by our transgressions. There's something different about us because of what he's done. And he's called us into a time to not just occupy space and not to just let time just, just pass by, pass by, pass by. But he wants to redeem these days for us. I don't know when Jesus will come back again. It could be this year. It likely could be 200 years, 300 years. We don't know. We don't know. But we know this is that we will all stand before him very soon. We will all stand before him very soon. And the Lord's calling us to make the most of our days. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your look. I want you to pray with me right now. We thank you for the look of the Lord that's upon us.